Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, God's Covenants. The Bible is structured by a series of covenants, all of which are focused on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The goal of these covenants is to create and redeem a people in whom God might dwell so that they will glorify and enjoy Him forever. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. ...to uh, 19 to kind of set us into what we're talking about. Um, I'm actually going to look at all of Genesis chapter 3, but we're going to read verses 14 to 19 to begin. So you can follow it up here on the screen. It's also in the booklet there in front of you, or follow along in your Bible. And uh, we're going to hear and learn about the redemptive heart of our God this morning. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, hear the word of your Creator and your Redeemer. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. If you've been watching the news, you might have noticed in recent weeks uh, they had a memorial at Auschwitz because it was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And there are very few survivors of Auschwitz that are still around and were able to go and be there. And every time uh, they have one of these anniversaries with Auschwitz, the same question comes out, how could humans do such a thing? How could we have perpetrated the Holocaust? And at the same time, I, I logged onto Facebook the other day and it popped up and said, four years ago you, you shared this video, you know, which they usually think are fun little things, but it was actually a video I had shared from an area in Cairo where it's overwhelmingly Christians. It's extreme crushing poverty. They live in a garbage dump and they bring the stuff out of it because for over a thousand years the Christians there have been relegated and reduced to subservience basically by law. It's, it's pretty much forced upon them. And we pray regularly for the persecuted church. And we again have to ask, how can humans do such a thing? And in reality, there's only two answers. If you're a materialist and you believe we just simply evolved and here we are and it's just the random collision of cosmic dust, then I've got very bad news because the answer is, it's inherent to what it means to be human. We're this way because that's the way we are. That's just the way the cosmic dust operates together. And therefore, strap in, we've got many, many more of these things in our future. Or, if you believe that we are the 
creation of God, uh, then there is hope that perhaps we were not always this way, and we don't have to be this way. And in fact, that is the biblical answer. Scripture is clear. We were made one way, and then something went wrong. Something shattered and was broken, which we refer to as the fall. And for example, in our catechism, or, or what we call foundations of faith, we, we talk about this actually. And we ask uh, in question 14, did God originally create humans so sinful and guilty? Were we made this messed up? And the answer is no, God originally created them good, made it his own image, able to glorify and enjoy him forever. So the question is, if we were originally made good and in the image of God and all the things that we've talked about the last three weeks looking at the covenant of creation, and we were in a good relationship with creation, with ourselves and other humans, and with God, how did we get here? How did we get from Eden to Auschwitz? That's what we want to talk about today. What happened? And is there any hope of change? And if so, how? So we're going to begin by going back to the beginning of chapter 3 and look at the fall of humanity. And in Genesis 3, 1 to 3, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve's about to answer him, but before she does, let me give you a little tip when you're reading Scripture here. Beware of talking serpents. Okay, something ought to pop into your head at this point that says, uh, this seems not right. Not just engage in a conversation, but Eve, with Adam standing there, we learn in a moment, she responds and she says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, Eve responds here correctly with what God had said. She, she adds a little bit to it, but I don't think that's the major emphasis in the text. But I want you to notice right off what the serpent, and we learn later that it's Satan behind him, that the reason this, this serpent can talk is not because serpents just talk. This isn't a Aesop's fairy tale here. is because Satan is actually working through this serpent. And notice what he's doing is he's slandering God. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, God had put them in the garden and said, in fact, you can eat anything you want. The entire garden lies open before you. Everything is yours to eat. There's one tree out of the thousands and thousands that are here. There's one that you can't eat from. But when Satan gets done with it, it's twisted around to God, put you in this beautiful garden and said, don't touch anything. You're not allowed to have any of it. So he's actually engaging in slander against God, saying that God is repressive and restrictive and reducing everything down, which is actually the exact opposite of what God has done. Uh, he won't let you eat anything. And so Eve correctly responds back with God's word. But then Satan continues on because she correctly stated God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. I love the way Hebrew is, dying you will die. It's Take it to the bank. You're going to die. So Satan hears this and he responds back and says, 
you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice, he's still slandering God. He's slandering God's character. And there is an outright challenge to God's word. God said, if you eat it, you'll die. And now the serpent, after he's worked for a little while, he comes back and he says, no, that is wrong. Okay, I was throwing some questions out before, but now I'm here to tell you it's just flat out wrong. God's word is not the truth. And the reason God told you this is he actually knows that far from dying, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. Now, of course, Adam and Eve should have said at this point, if they're going to be talking to a serpent, uh, we already are like God. We're already made in his image. We're already as close to God as a created being could possibly be. So what you're making us a promise that is foolish on its face. You're promising freedom that's actually slavery. You're telling us what's true, but it's actually a lie. But Adam and Eve don't do that. They instead listen to this lie regarding our true nature, what freedom is, and what reality is. And I want to remind you that, as we're going to see in verse 6, Adam is standing right there the whole time. If you remember, back when we looked in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we're told that God put Adam in the garden. This is before Eve had even been created. And he had told him, you are to work the ground and you are to guard the garden. You're to take care of it, is the way the NIV puts it. But the word take care of can mean that, but it also means to guard something, to protect it. Okay, remember we looked at how God says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord guard you. The Lord watch over you. It's that same word. So what Adam should have done at this point is pulled a stick off of a tree and beat the serpent and driven him out of the garden. The conversation should have been over if you're going to talk to a talking snake in the first place. But Adam doesn't do that. They foolishly say, hmm, this sounds pretty smart. I wonder if this snake knows more than God. I wonder if his perspective is better than God's. And so we read in the very next verse, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So notice here, and I'm not going to spend much time on this this morning, but the way of temptation is we start doubting God's word. God has spoken with infinite, perfect knowledge he has truly revealed it to you and I, not exhaustively because we can't understand anything exhaustively. We are finite creatures, but God has truly revealed as much of the truth as we can grasp. But temptation starts when you start get doubting that. And furthermore, you start doubting God's motives as to why God is doing what he's doing, what's going on, so that what is forbidden starts looking good, pleasing, and desirable. When the reality is, it's not good, it's evil. 
and it's not pleasing and desirable, it leads to death. But it looks good because from where you're standing and what you're listening to, this is what's going on. So this is working in uh, Eve and Adam's heart. And so we read, she took, she gave, and they ate. And in so doing, they are breaking the covenant of creation that God had made with them, that covenant that we've expanded out for three weeks and looking at it, and they break it in direct violation of God's word. He had said, this is the covenant. You must keep it. Here's what you're called to do, and here's the test. I've given you my verbal command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you're going to die. They've now plucked the fruit. They have taken. They have eaten. And what's going to happen? Well, we immediately discover the results of the fall. And it's what we usually refer to as the curse. So notice the fall immediately disrupts our relationships with everything. Every aspect of the covenant of creation is affected by the fall. So first off, it disrupts our relationship with humanity. The very next words are, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then in verse 12, it says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. This is when God asked Adam, what have you done? Because he begins with Adam. And I want you to notice, this is not a cute little story about why we wear clothes. This is a tragedy. Human beings had been open uncovered. There was no shame. We're told in chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and they had no shame. They were utterly open and vulnerable before one another. Naked's about a lot more than just where you're wearing clothing or not. And the moment we violate God's covenant, our immediate reaction is shame. Not because of what somebody else is saying or doing, but because it drives to the core of our being. And the immediate reaction is to hide. Whether I sow fig leaves together, I get in the bushes, whatever other way. And if you are honest with yourself, this is exactly what we do. Ever since this moment, human beings have been hiding from one another. Because we don't trust one another. And oftentimes, with good reason, we don't since the fall. But notice then in verse 12, when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, I made you, I'm the, I gave you the command. Because if you go back and read in Genesis 2, I told you, Eve wasn't even there when I gave you the command. Did you do what I told you not to do, Adam? Who told you you were naked? And Mr. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this is the woman I've been waiting for, says she did it. Okay, Now, no married couple in here has ever gone through anything like that, right? No parent of children. You never have kids who do that, right? See, is this not an accurate description of humanity? And it's immediately after the fall. Immediately, we are hiding from one another and blaming one another. This is a recipe for disaster, and it is not too strong to say that the shame and the desire to cover ourselves and hide from one another and the desire to blame others, friends, that road leads to Auschwitz. That's how you get there. 
we, we mistrust the other. And we cast blame. Whatever problems I have, it's that group's fault. And if we can identify who that group is, we will crucify them. It's the way humans have reacted. And so notice here um, that this is a huge problem. And within our humanity, here's the problem. Because of the covenant of creation, we are still created beings. We still have the same responsibilities. So we're supposed to be in this relationship with one another, but sin has disrupted that. Furthermore, we're supposed to have children and to fill the earth. But now there's going to be a problem. Notice God speaks to Eve and says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And all the women who've ever had a child say, amen. That's exactly how it is. With pain, you will give birth to your children. So notice there that you're still going to have children, but now there's going to be a negative edge to this. It is going to be a painful experience to do that which you were created to do. And then notice the last words in verse 16. They may have stung your ear when you read them. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is not a good statement. This is, God, this is not God saying this is a plan for a Christian family. This is conflict. This is curse. You're going to have a desire. The, the next time this word is used, it's a very rare word. The next time it's used is in Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter where God says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, Cain. You've got to stop it. Okay? Cain doesn't. Murders his brother. God's saying here, Eve, you're going to have this desire towards your husband, but rather than being the way it was created to be, now it's going to be twisted. And his response back is going to be twisted and harsh. And if you don't believe that that is described how men have treated women throughout human history, you need to get out of the house a lot more. You need to read some more history and understand. This is a sad prophecy of what we brought onto the race. So ultimately, rather than there being harmony between people, our relationships reflecting the Trinity, we have conflict, breakdown of the family, and I remind you, the very next story is Cain and Abel. Murder. This is the nature of sin. It spreads, it defiles, it causes disruption and breakdown. So we got a problem within humanity. But the fall also disrupted our relationship with creation. Notice in verses 17 to 19, God speaks to Adam and he says, because you did this that I told you not to do, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. You know, Before the fall, the picture is that the ground is willingly going to submit to us. The picture is that it's going to be productive. Uh, I love in, if you've ever read Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and the account of creation in that little uh, story series, at the beginning, the, the ground is so fruitful that whatever goes into the soil grows up. Even, even a piece of a lamppost from our world goes into the ground and suddenly an entire lamppost grows up but not after the fall. After the fall, Adam, you are going to work, you are going to labor, and after all the sweat and pain and labor, you're gonna get thorns and thistles. You're gonna struggle, and if you've ever farmed, 
you know exactly what this is. Every farm grows weeds and rocks better than anything. It's just the nature of the way it is. It's, it's what's happened. And so we're, we're going to still have to continue working in creation like we're called to, but now there's going to be a pain. And the picture is this struggle that we were taken out of the dust, and rather than the dust willingly submitting to us, so to speak, there's this war until the last day when the dust reaches up and grabs us and pulls us back down into it. There is conflict, not only between humans and humans, but even human and creation, which leads to why we have this messed up relationship. I talked about a few weeks ago. We either want to bow down and worship created things, or we brutally and harshly treat them rather than what God called us to do, which is, no, you are in charge because you're my image bearers, but you're to love and care and and take care of it. But we find it so hard to stay between those two ditches, and that's because of sin that what was meant to be harmony is now war and then finally and most tragically the fall disrupted our relationship with god notice in verse eight one of the saddest verses in the bible then the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the lord god among the trees of the garden that that is a sad verse if i came home you know i mean i i love i get the project this morning i went out front and and one of my granddaughters and grandson came running up to me and wanting pop at a hold them and i'm trying to juggle them both in my arms if i come in and they all run and hide what do you think that would do to my heart i mean that would be crushing and god comes walking into the garden condescending I might know, because God's not a human like us that he walks. He's, he's coming down in a way that we can experience him to have fellowship with Adam and Eve, and what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding in the bushes. And God calls out and says, Adam, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Perfect love and fellowship is now replaced with fear. When we sin, rather than running to God, everything in us wants to run away from God. We run and we hide just like they do. And this is actually the root of all of our other maladies. When when we are cut off from God, you can count on it that it is going to destroy our relationships with one another. It is going to destroy our relationship with creation because since we are the image of God, when that very image is now a cause of fear and loathing and we don't understand it, we we don't know how to relate properly to others or to creation because we're cut off from the source that would tell us how to do it. And so when our relationship with God is fallen, everything else decays and goes into ruin. Everything. Now, this is sad enough for Adam and Eve, but the question is, what does that have to do with us? What is the extent of the fall? Well, I want you to notice that, first off, the fall affects every area of the covenant of creation, and thus every aspect of our lives. So, again, in our our Foundations of Faith thing, we, we got a question that says that what was the effect of God's judgment upon our fallen condition? In our fallen condition, we've lost fellowship with God, 
his creation and one another and brought his just anger and curse upon ourselves. As a result, we are subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. Notice there, it's God, creation, and one another. The same aspect here, I, I didn't, we didn't do the question this week, it's because it's a reflection of what the Scripture's teaching us. Everything we were given in the covenant of creation, which was everything, is affected by the fall. There is nowhere unaffected by the fall. If I can use some poetic license for a second, when Adam and Eve bit, the farthest star shuddered. Everything was affected by the fall. Sin cannot be contained. We are on a mission. See, the serpent is here and he's still telling us, nah, it's not that big a deal. If you, it doesn't hurt anybody if you do this. Never true. Never, ever true. Because sin always deforms me as a person and the next time I meet you, I am a different person. Sin is never inert. And so everything has changed. Our relationship with God, our relationship with creation, and our relationship with one another. But secondly, that was not only true for Adam and Eve, it's true for every human being since them. You can, I'm not going to take the time right now to look in Romans chapter 5, but if you read Romans 5, 12 to 21, that's exactly how Paul lays out the gospel. and says, look, when Adam sinned, everybody was implicated. Everybody is part of that. And so when you ask how did humans become sinful and guilty, if we were originally created good, if we were originally created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how do we end up at Auschwitz? Well, here's the answer, friends. Our first father, Adam, sinned when he willfully disobeyed God, and this fall has poisoned our nature so that we are born sinners, guilty before God, and since then we all choose to disobey God as well. And if you don't believe we are born sinners, if you are a parent, ask yourself, how hard did you train your children to do that which was wrong? I... I spent all kinds of labor trying to stop them from doing wrong. I never woke up and said, I think I'll teach them how to lie to me. I think, and my wife laughs because she knows better. You, you don't have to do that. We are born bent. We are born crooked. That's why we consistently think. See, when we came to the new world, we thought, well, we're sailing across the ocean. Even Christians came here and said, we're going to set up a city on a hill. And how long did that last? I mean, we get here and we start raping and pillaging and plundering the whole place. Because it doesn't matter where you go. We can put you and me in a capsule, shoot us to the farthest corner of space, start off a whole new place, and it's going to be messed up from the get-go. Because you're there and I'm there. It's the way we are. Sad to say, the fall affected every one of us. This is why Cain murders Abel. The first two children were told about that Eve thinks one of them is going to be the seed that we're going to talk about in just a moment. And what he ends up doing is he ends up killing his brother. Humanity falls into chaos. That's the whole story of Noah. And we do evil all the way down to this day. Friends, if we weren't born bent now, you don't end up at Auschwitz. 
If we weren't born bent, you don't have all the suffering and persecution that goes on around the world. If we weren't born bent, Tanya could have told you the name of the missionary we support in Indonesia, but we can't because if his name's found out, that man's life expectancy is short. Something has gone wrong, and it's gone wrong all the way down to our genes. It's in our DNA now. Okay, and again, you can look in Romans 5 and see Paul develop that out. When we listen to Satan and we disobeyed God, we joined Satan in his rebellion. This is not eating a piece of fruit. It is treason on a cosmic scale. Nothing less. Sin is always treason on a cosmic scale scale that's all a very cheery picture isn't it but that's the reality of who we are but i bring that up and we cover that because what i want to take the remaining few minutes this morning to do is go over the covenant of redemption and i want you to see amazingly what i would expect with what i've just described is god wiping us out Because if somebody else committed treason against me, that's precisely how I would respond. And so we have every expectation that God will destroy us. But amazingly, that's not what happens. Amazingly, what we get in Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel, the good news. God promises to work redemption for us. He is cursing the serpent, and notice what he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so notice here that ultimately sin is about us joining Satan against God. You you have joined together, the two of you in rebellion to me, but God comes in and tells Satan, you lured them onto your team, but I am promising right now I'm going to split the two apart. I am going to break humanity off from you, and rather than them loving and following you, I'm going to create enmity between the two of you, because this is ultimately about God's rulership and Satan's rebellion. Secondly, notice God is promising to undo our rebellion, and this is what's amazing. We had doubted God's word of command, but he comes back and graciously gives us a word of promise. We had doubted God's motives and foolishly trusted Satan, but God, being more gracious than we could have ever imagined, comes back and promises to redeem us and to deal with Satan. We had joined Satan, but God is promising to separate us off from him and to bring us back to himself. And just as the sin is going to continue on into the future, God is promising that this enmity between humanity and Satan is going to continue through the seed of each. So sin and the effects of the fall continue through the generations. So does God's covenant of redemption. And that's the good news. It's terrible news that this sin has so infected us that we find ourselves where we are today. But the good news is the opposite is also true. That God's covenant promise was not just effective for Adam and Eve, but all the way down to the present. And I want you to notice now this 
idea of seed and offspring, it's not talking about physical children. And we know this because, number one, Satan, whom God is addressing through the serpent, does not have physical descendants and children. So it can't be talking about physical descendants and children. Secondly, the very next story starts to show us this separation. Cain is on the side of Satan. Make no mistake. Abel is on the side of God. Why do I say Cain's on the side of Satan? That may sound harsh. 1 John 3.12 tells us this. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the Greek. The Greek preposition is ek. It's literally who is from or of Satan. Okay, John's making an allusion back here. He's the seed of Satan. And the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain and Abel are the first fulfillment of this promise, that there is this separation, but there's an enmity that's going on. And the seed of each side can be traced all the way through Scripture. God is laying out what the history of humanity is going to look like. Jesus, when he comes to work redemption as the ultimate seed of the woman, in John chapter 8, he speaks to people who claim to be spokesmen for God, and he tells them, you belong to your father, the devil. And again, belong to is literally, you are of your father. You are from your father. You are the seed of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So notice Jesus saying, Satan is acting the way Satan is, but I want you to know you are of him. You are from him. You are his seed. You are acting in accord with him, which is why you are persecuting me. Why you have such hatred for me, because I've come from God, you've come from Satan, and therefore there is conflict between us. Now, ultimately notice, however, when we go back to Genesis 3.15, this is true of in general, there's going to be this separation we see in Scripture, but ultimately the focus comes to one seed or one offspring who is one person that will do battle with Satan himself and win redemption. So notice it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, what's important here is the word seed or offspring, just like in English, can mean one seed or many seeds. It can be used collectively, okay? Uh, I can say, you know, one seed of wheat or go spread seed, and the word seed still means, it means many, even though it's the same word. The same way is true in Hebrew and also in Greek. It can be used for both singular and plural. And we've seen that there are many plural references. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and says, all of you, this whole group of you are the seed of Satan, okay? But here, Notice that it says, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. It's now coming down to a singular reference. And God is saying, look, there's going to be this enmity. There's going to be this split. This is going to go on. And I'm promising that one is going to come forth. And just like Adam made a mess of everything, I'm going to send a second Adam who's going to fix everything. He's going to come through the woman, and he is going to deal with the uh the enemy and 
Notice here that the seed of the woman is doing battle. This is not the, the many seed of the, the women that are accomplishing this, but the one seed of the woman doing battle against the serpent himself. Because it doesn't say he's going to crush your seed. It says he's going to crush your head. And amazingly enough, it's telling us that this, uh, that th this one that's going to come, this is the beginning of what's going to develop through the rest of the Bible. The rest of this series we're going to talk about is who this seed is, that God is promising redemption. And this is not something that Christians came up with later. This verse was already viewed messianically hundreds of years before Jesus. The Jews already said this is the first promise of Messiah. And so it is that God has made this promise. It's the first reference to the coming seed who's going to fulfill the call of humanity in the covenant of creation, conquer Satan and sin, and bring redemption to God's people. And the rest of Scripture, if you will, is really just the flowering out of this promise. It is God showing, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. And every other covenant is part of this. Every other covenant is simply the outworking of this grand covenant. The rest of Scripture is the telling of this story that starts right here. Because, friends, the central message of the Scripture is God is bringing glory to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he creates and redeems a people in whom he lives by his Spirit so that they glorify and enjoy him forever. That's what the whole Bible is about, and it is anchored and rooted right here. And this is God doing it. And I want you to notice further, there's a price. God's already stated what the price is going to be. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. They're struggling here with how to interpret it. The verb crush and the verb strike are identical in Hebrew. It's the same verb. The problem is, is when you step on something's head, you don't usually say strike, you would say crush, and you don't say a snake crushes the heel but it's the same verb really you need to pick the same word to try and do it it's he he's you're going to step on him or you're going to strike out at him and he's going to strike out at you when this seed comes god is already telling us to work redemption is going to be costly and hear this god says I'm willing to pay the price. To do this battle, to redeem you, to save you, to undo the mess that you have made is going to cost. But the seed is willing to pay the price. And I want you to see, here's a picture I'm going to throw up on the screen. This is a, a, a picture I love. This is Genesis 3.15, and it's what the rest of Scripture is about. And the worship team is going to go ahead and start getting ready to come up to lead us in a song in a moment. But notice here, here's a picture of Eve standing there with the fruit. She has sinned. She has fallen, and she's got her hand out on Mary's stomach because who's in Mary? Jesus, the seed. And notice down at the bottom Wrapped around Eve is the serpent, but what is Mary doing? She's stepping and crushing his head, 
instead of who Jesus is. Because the seed of the woman is going to come and going to deal with the enemy who is all wrapped around Eve. The seed is the second Adam. He's going to fulfill everything Adam was called to do. He's going to deliver us from the curse and give us God's covenant blessings. And that leads to what I want us to do. It's going to be applying the word is going to be really short this morning because it's mainly going to be Tony leading us at the Lord's table. What I, I hope you get out of this this morning, what's most important, is the question, do I see that God is a redeemer? Do we, do we understand the redemptive heart of God? Our actions deserved only judgment and rejection. Adam and Eve understood that in their guts. That's why the second they heard God coming, what did they do? They ran and hid because they knew they were in trouble. He's a holy God. He made me to obey him, and I have disobeyed. And I can tell down in my genes something has gone seriously wrong. And the only way this can end is judgment. And then, out of nowhere, God comes and he promises redemption. Even before he's pronounced the curse on Adam and Eve. Even before he's implicated the rest of creation. He speaks a curse on Satan. And in that curse, he speaks a word of promise to Adam and Eve. And he promises that he is going to bring redemption. And friends, this is how God acts. Redemption is not just something God occasionally does. It's who God is. It is the way he works towards you and me because if he did not, there would be no hope. If God were to judge me according to my actions, as a regenerate believer, as somebody who's been a Christian now for 42 years, I would have nothing but judgment. I would never be able to come to this table. I would never be able to receive the blessing of God. But thanks be to God, he's a God of redemption. It's his very nature and character. And so I want to urge you this morning, don't let your sin cause you to hide from God. When God comes to you and you know you have sinned, run to him. Come out of the bushes. Don't go and try and hide. That is what we are all tempted to do, is to run and hide from him. He's opening up. He wants us to come to him to receive from him. Don't make excuses for sin. See, that's what we do today. Well, that's not really sin. Yes, it is. What God has spoken is sin, is sin. But the good news is we can come clean. We can confess it, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. So I want us to respond this morning to God's covenant of redemption, to respond knowing that God wants to work redemptively in your life. I'm not going to put this verse on the screen, but hear this word, and then we're going to come to the table. In Romans 8.32, as Paul has been surveying the gospel, the unfolding of Genesis 3.15, he comes and he says this, He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Christ has come. He has already been snake bit. He has already been lashed at. He has already borne the stripes. He has already tasted death in your behalf and mine. His heart towards you is redemption. So as we come to the table, let's come clean. Let's open up before him and know you are never going to hear God say, no, I don't want any more to do with you. Your sin is too great. It is too much. There is nothing that I can do for you. That will never be the case. So Tony's going to come forward. He's going to lead us at the Lord's table. And in a moment, the worship team, as the elements are passed out, is going to be singing a song, um, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which unfolds all of us. And I encourage you to hear it, to remind ourselves of this great story. Tony. Well, today we learned the distressing truth that uh, Adam and Eve and their pride caused a great fall, but is it the ultimate fall? Is that what we're condemned to for, for all time? The ultimate fall is a different fall. It's the fall of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 tells us a little something about that. Let me read that for you, five, uh, verses 5 through 8 in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here at the table of Jesus Christ, we see the opposite of Adam and Eve's pride, the opposite of Satan's pride. It's not pride that goes before Christ's fall. It's humility climbing down to join us in our pain. We started with nothing and were given everything. He started with everything and made himself nothing. Our fall was deserved. His fall was chosen. The first Adam fails in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam triumphs in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, rather than allowing the cup of damnation to be passed to us, the cup we rightfully earned by our pride and our treachery, he accepts it and humbly asks, Abba Father, let it be me. Our pride caused the fall, but praise be to God the humility of Christ brings salvation. If you believe Christ is your only hope for the saving mercy of God's forgiveness for your pride and sin, we welcome you at this table. This is not BRCC's table. This is the table of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe Christ is your only hope, then I would ask that you let the elements pass. See one of the elders, see Brett, after the service. We'd be delighted to ask, answer your questions and, and pray for you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, 
he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you take the uh, elements, hold on to them. We'll take them together. Um, if you want gluten-free, please raise your hand. It will be provided to you. And now, as we distribute the elements, would you please stand? And we're going to sing, Behold the Wondrous Mystery, together. Father, we confess we have denied you. We have betrayed you. We have sinned against you. We have vainly attempted to replace you, O oh God, and make ourselves the lords and justifiers of our own lives. But you, in your perfect love and mercy, have been kind to us. You have pursued us even in our rebellion, and you have made a way through the broken body of Jesus Christ that we might be reconciled to you and know the joy you made us for. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, just as Adam in his pride and arrogance made an alliance with Satan to betray you, we openly confess that in our pride we have often done the same thing. And even though we are very often work in vain to make ourselves equal to you, you emptied yourself to become nothing for us. Even while we were your enemies, Jesus, you pursued us into the hell we created to bring us into the paradise you made for us. You chose us over yourself and gave up your life so that ours might be saved. Lord Jesus, while we are here at your table, would you graciously remind us of your humility? And more, Jesus, would you align our hearts with your heart so the humility you showed the world will take root in us? Take and drink. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of love and truth through whom we are made new. We ask, oh, spirit of holiness, would you come upon us in power this week and reveal to us our pride and our sin and empower us to resist our selfishness and instead turn to God, loving him and serving others in his name. Spirit of the living God, conform our hearts to the hearts of Christ and help us grow in holiness, love, and humility that we might yet bring delight to our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, the benediction from 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.